Good morning, Church of Nine. Uh, please leave that Matthew chapter 22 in front of you. Uh, let's have a look at it together. Uh, what do you think about heaven? Do you want to be there? And more importantly, are you sure you will be there? Heaven is not taken very seriously in our world today. Many people brush it off as irrelevant and uninspiring. You know, people say, oh, heaven sounds like an unending, boring church services with no fun. Who would want to be there? After all, none of my friends will be there. But on the other hand, heaven persists in people's vocabulary, though it is simply taken for granted. You know, people always repeat at the funeral services, he has gone to a better place. She deserved better than this world, and she's enjoying that right now. Uh, it's almost like everyone gets into heaven by default. It's justification by death alone. Uh, there is no serious thought given to how one may or may not enter into heaven. And it's fair to say we Christians haven't been immune to this way of thinking about heaven either. Uh, when was the last time you thought seriously about heaven? Think about it. When was the last time? If you are anything like me, uh, your thoughts and priorities are often given to what is immediately relevant and tangible, isn't it? How to do my job better. How to provide better, better education and life for my children. How to improve my present life circumstances and feel better about myself. I'm too busy to think about heaven. You know, earthly life is enough for me to handle right now. I'll worry about heaven when I get there. Uh, don't get me wrong, I don't mean to suggest that earthly life is unimportant or any of the things that I mentioned as examples. But we must take heaven more seriously than we normally do. Heaven is too important to neglect. FOMO is real when it comes to heaven. You don't want to miss out. And Jesus doesn't want you to miss out. He wants you to be there. And for that reason, I think he has written and preserved this parable for us to make sure we're prepared and not miss out on the kingdom of heaven. So I want to look at this passage in three sections today. First, uh, what is heaven like? Uh, then we'll give majority of our time thinking about who is heaven for, who is worthy. Uh, finally, thinking and responding more personally uh, with are you worthy? Okay, under those uh, three sections. So first, what is heaven like? Look at verse two. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his, his son. First of all, heaven is a kingdom. There is a king who reigns over his people according to his rule. Uh, heaven is where God, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, rule with righteousness and justice. Unlike earthly kingdoms, which is always prone to injustice and violence, beset by weaknesses and failures, volatility and fragility, as we witness today, heaven is a kingdom where the perfect king governs with justice, righteousness and peace. It's where God's will is done without fail to perfection. The kingdom of heaven is also a kingdom of festivity. It may be compared to a king who gave a feast. Heaven is a festival. It's a place of food, fun, feasting. If you thought heaven would be boring, well, you haven't got the biblical picture of heaven, have you? 
think back, think of the best party you have ever been to. Do you like fine dining? I suppose in current circumstances, the best finding, best fine dining any of us can enjoy would be through YouTube. But think of the time, um, your best fine dining experiences, best um, food that you've um, enjoyed, your favorite food, your favorite wine. Uh, heaven's feast will be infinitely greater than that. Heaven is a place of rich food and wine a place of joy and abundance where there is no economic downturn or depression, whether it be financial or emotional. But thirdly, this feast is not any feast, but the marriage feast of his son. Heaven is a marriage. Heaven is a relationship and fellowship. Heaven is where we will see the son of God face to face and enjoy his fellowship with an intimacy like that of a marriage relationship. Now, if you are married by God's grace, uh, you may have experienced a foretaste of how good this is. If you are unmarried, or if your marriage has come to, a, come to an end due to the tragic reality of death in this world, well, that longing in your heart, that yearning to share an intimate, personal, lasting relationship, well, that has been put in your heart by God to lift your eye towards heaven. That, that has been put in your heart in order for God to teach you what heaven is like. Your heart's yearning is looking towards heaven. So what is heaven like? Uh, it's a kingdom. It's a feast. It's a marriage. Uh, these imageries are steeped deep into the well of the Old Testament. Uh, uh, Terry read for us back in Isaiah 25, the vision of God's feast for all people, where death is swallowed up. There is no more tear, no more pain, but a lasting joy and peace in the presence of our God. Now, heaven is where our deepest hunger is satisfied. Uh, our hunger for food, hunger for sex, hunger for peace, hunger for security, hunger for deep friendship, hunger for lasting love. All our deepest desires will be satisfied in the kingdom of heaven. That's what heaven is. Kingdom of satisfaction, kingdom of salvation, kingdom of abundant joy and fellowship with God. Jesus has brought this kingdom through his death and resurrection and is bringing it to completion on the day of his return. How do you feel about heaven now? Do you want to be there? I know I do. And I hope you do too. Then an important question for us to ask is, well, who is heaven for? Who can come into this kingdom, to the marriage feast of the son? Uh, that's the question the parable spends most of its time answering. So we need to look at the parable uh, more closely. Uh, first, look at the way the king, God, acts and the way his subject, his people respond. Verse 3. And the king sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. Astonishingly, this kingdom is offered freely by the king to his subjects, his people. Uh, we've already seen this in another parable back in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16. The kingdom of heaven is kingdom of grace. God graciously and generously extends invitation to his subjects. But here is the first twist, and there are many in this parable. Those who are invited would not respond to the king's invitation. 
the tense form is imperfect in verse 3. Literally, they continually refused to come. They continually rejected God's offer. But that did not stop the king from inviting his subject to the wedding feast. Look at verse 4. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Uh, brothers and sisters, this is what God is like. If any children are still listening and with us, uh, uh, God is G for giver. At the heart of God is not grasping, but giving. Now we need to get this right because deep in our heart, our sinful, perverted human heart, our image of God, uh, there is this image of grasping, tight-fisted God, God who wants to use us, God who wants to exploit us and take, take, take from us and make our life miserable and not give us any fun. It is this skepticism about God's goodwill towards us that led Adam and Eve to disobey God back in the Garden of Eden in the first instance. And many in our world today still think of God in this way, a tight-fisted slave master in the image of Pharaoh. But nothing could be far from the truth. At the heart of God is not grasping but giving. He is gracious and generous God who delights to bless his people. Listen to what he says again. See, I have prepared my dinner for you, my oxen, my fed calves. I don't, I'm not going to spare anything rich and good from you. Everything is ready for you. Come to the wedding feast, says our God. But if that is what God is like, those who are invited to his wonderful kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of grace, does not prove them worthy. Grace rejected, point two, point B. Look at verse five. Yet they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servant, treated them shamefully and killed them. It's quite difficult to understand their response, right? Why would you ignore the king's invitation? Why would you reject an invitation to a marriage feast? We're not told yet. Perhaps they have a wrong image of God. It's irrational, isn't it? It doesn't make sense. But sin is irrational. That has been true in my life, and I'm sure it resonates with your own life experience as well. Uh, sin, evil, falsehood is irrational, but somehow we commit ourselves to it. And it's only when we see sin for what it truly is, uh, with the help of revelation like this parable, it's only then we come to the realization and say, what on earth was I thinking? Why did I reject God's offer? Why did I think that rejecting God will make me happy? That's so stupid. So if some of the actions in this parable doesn't seem to make much sense at first sight, well, in one sense, it's teaching us that's what sin is like. It's completely irrational. It is deeply ungrateful. It's stupid. And that's what we do in life whenever you and I turn our back against God. Now, this section of the parable is remarkably similar to the previous parable. Did you notice that? Uh, the parable of the tenants back in chapter, chapter 21. Just as the tenants of the vineyard beat and killed the servants of the master here, uh, we see the people ignoring and killing the king's messengers. 
So the, both parables are retelling the history of Israel. The Old Testament story, Israel's persistent and willful rejection of their God, their gracious and giving and forgiving God. But Israel's story is a microcosm of the human history at large. This is how humanity has always responded to God all throughout our history. This is how many in our own city respond to God today. People say, I have no time for God. We're a double-income family. Our weekends are precious. This phase of my life is too important. I have to give my focus to my career, my family. Just as Israel rejected God's grace with ungrateful hostility and adulterous idolatry, humanity as a whole has and does continue to spurn and reject God's grace. Are such people worthy of the kingdom of heaven? It's heaven for such people. Uh, look at verse 7. King didn't think so. King was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. You see, kingdom of heaven is kingdom of righteousness and justice. It's where there will be no more sin and evil. Therefore, the king will not let murderers to get away in his kingdom. Justice will be done. Judgment will be served righteously. Yet amazingly, the people's rejection did not stop the king from offering his gracious invitation yet again. Now, more widened and extended than ever before. You know, don't skim read this part. You know, when you read the parable, sometimes you know the rest of the story and you're tempted to skim read certain parts. But just try to feel the sense of wonder here. If you have ever been rejected, and I'm sure most have been rejected before in life, you know how hard it is to get over rejection. And the more you love the person, the harder the rejection is. The more you trusted and gave your heart out, the more painful it is when they betray you and show ungrateful hostility. That's why breakups are so hard. That's why teenager children are so hard for parents, right? That's exactly what God experienced with Israel for thousands of years. Just simply magnify that to what fits God's grace and his honor. Yet, Human rejection and Israel's persistent rejection could not stop the heart of God from pouring out his grace yet again. Look at verse 8. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Can you feel the wonder of that? The surprised look on the faces of those unsuspecting guests. Uh, here, of course, the parable is depicting how God widened and extended his grace, not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. That has been the big theme in Matthew's gospel, right? That's how Matthew's gospel ends. Go and make disciples of all nations, not just the Jews. Uh, here is where you and I fit in. By nature, uh, by our family history. Most of us are not Jews. And it's not a very flattering picture of ourselves, is it? Uh, we are the anybody you can find on the road <laughs> in the story. 
But that is a true picture of who we are before God, who you are, who I am. Undeserving nobodies who come into God's kingdom simply and all because of God's grace. Is that how you think of yourself before God? Is that your self-knowledge? A nobody. Nothing in my hand I bring, but simply upon the grace of God I cling on. Uh, You see, it's only when you grasp a true knowledge of yourself, you are amazed at grace. You actually start to mean it when you sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It's amazing. In God's infinite wisdom, the rejection of Jewish leaders had the ultimate effect of not frustrating God's grace, but rather widening and extending God's grace. Just how amazing is God and his grace? His grace is not only free grace, but now indiscriminate grace. It's for all people to all nations in all ages. Now through this parable, we learn once again that there is in God's heart, you know, we can look into God's heart through this parable, through his revelation. How amazing is that? Uh, There is in God's heart a deep, passionate longing to share his goodness with us. Look at God's determination to invite and fill up the wedding hall of his son's marriage feast. It's almost like God cannot help himself but offer himself and share all his good gifts with people. God is love, and that's what love does. Love pours out. Love gives. Love shares. God longs to give himself to us. And brothers and sisters, I want to say that is true of God today. God is still offering his grace with open and wide arm to you. If you have not responded to him yet, he is inviting you today to receive his gracious invitation to the kingdom of heaven. These words that he says, he's saying to you, everything is ready. I've done everything for you in Jesus Christ. Come to me. Drink from me. Eat from me. Find forgiveness in me. Find hope. Receive eternal life in me. Or if there are any of you who have not yet responded to his invitation, respond to his gracious invitation today. There is no one here today who can say, he never invited me. He did. He does. His grace is offered, 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 and offered again. Kingdom of heaven is open wide for everyone, including you. Now, if the story ended there, that would have been good. No, that would have made, made my job easy, your job easy, because you can stop listening now. And we would all feel very good with this happy ending. Uh, but there is another twist in this parable, and this is very important for us to give some time to in verses 11 to 14. Because God's grace is despised yet again in this parable. Actually, there has been a hint all along that a further trouble is ahead. Uh, did you notice that when, you, when we read verse 10? Whom did the king's servants gather? Well, it was a mixed bunch, wasn't it? Both good and bad. No, actually, it says both bad and good. If you're reading carefully, you have noticed that strange word order. Why not both good and bad? It's both bad and good. 
uh, bad is given prominence and it demands our attention. Uh, this language reminds of other parables Jesus gives throughout Matthew's gospel. Uh, for example, the parable of the weeds in chapter 13, Jesus tells the servants to leave the weeds lest it harm the wheat. But on the last day, gather, same language, the wheat into my barn, but throw the weeds to be burnt by fire. Uh, likewise, in the parable of the net, in the same chapter, Jesus says, it will be at the close of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous, the bad and good, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So in verses 11 to 14, uh, what we are seeing is a picture of the final day of God's judgment before the kingdom of heaven. Let me read that out for you again, verses 11 to 14. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. He said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, mentioning of clothing is actually quite interesting here because Jesus was speaking primarily to the chief priests for whom clothing was quite special and important. A priest could not wear whatever they wanted to wear and approach God casually in the temple. Uh, when we study the book of Exodus in a few weeks' time, you'll see just how important and unique uh, priestly clothing was. Now, in a similar manner, clothing is important at a wedding feast, especially at the wedding feast of the king's son. Uh, this is true even in today's world. You generally don't go to someone's wedding wearing thongs and casual clothing. If you've ever been tempted to do that, I strongly urge you not to, because uh, culturally and in intuitively, we all know that such clothing is dishonoring to the couple and offensive to the occasion. All the more when it is a royal wedding. Uh, this man in verse 11 has deliberately turned up to the wedding without a proper clothing. So with his careless and dishonoring external appearance, he makes clear what's in his heart, what he actually thinks about the king and his son. In this way, his attitude is not too different from the attitude of those who rejected the king back in verses 5 and 6. Uh, just as the king pronounced those men unworthy in verse 8, this man is also unworthy to receive the kingdom of heaven. And he righteously receives God's judgment. And he knows that what he's done is wrong, right? Uh, when the king asks, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? He is speechless because he knew his guilt. Uh, this wasn't a poor man who didn't have time and money to go shopping. No, this man despised the grace of God with contempt. And for such people, heaven's door will be shut against them. Uh, they will righteously be condemned. In fact, they will condemn themselves and remain speechless at their verdict. Now, let's sum up and let me go back and answer my question. Who is heaven for? Who can enter it? I think the answer is given to us in verse 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. Uh, perhaps a better translation is, for many are called, but not all are chosen. Not all come and respond righteously, rightly. 
God's invitation to the kingdom of heaven is open for everyone, but only those who respond rightly, only those who prove themselves worthy to be welcomed and sit at God's table and feast at the marriage of the Son of God. Now, when you put it like that, it sounds awfully like as if salvation is by works. And and let me clarify that misunderstanding if that's what you're thinking. I don't mean that. Proving yourself worthy in this parable is not about adding to the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, what I'm about to say is not contradictory to the, you know, what the Reformation doctrine called salvation by faith alone. But we need to take this parable seriously because it has you and my heaven's entrance at stake. Uh, what does it mean to be worthy or unworthy in Matthew's gospel? We need to ask this question. And let's look at a couple of references in Matthew's gospel. The first appearance of the word comes from the mouth of John the Baptist back in chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, feel free to have a look at that yourself. As he prepares the way of the Lord, John the Baptist proclaims, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That The word keeping there is worthy. So you might uh, as well say, bear fruit worthy of repentance. He's saying, you must turn away from the old way of living. Live a life that is in line with God's character and his word. Live a life uh, that proves that you believe his word. Then a lot of Matthew's use of the word worthy appears in Jesus' second discourse in chapter 10. As Jesus sends out his disciples to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, he says to them in chapter 10, verse 12, as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Uh, so worthiness of a person is determined by their response to the gospel proclaimed by Jesus' disciples. Uh, finally, Jesus uses the word worthy in relation to the person's attitude to Jesus himself in chapter 10, verse 37. Uh, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Uh, so worthiness is measured by one's love and allegiance to Jesus. When we put this all together, the worthy ones or the chosen ones or the ones who dress rightly in Matthew all symbolizes those who respond to the hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ with genuine faith and repentance. The right question for us to ponder then and respond in light of today's passage is, Am I worthy? Is my faith and repentance genuine? Am I living a life that is in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ? We must ask that. Uh, th that may sound a little bit scary for some of you. Um, and some people get nervous about that and doesn't like questions like these ever put before them. They think it, it inevitably leads people to thinking salvation by works or unhelpful introspection. But I don't think that's the Bible's view. And it doesn't need to lead to unhelpful introspection. Assurance of salvation is real and possible. If you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you are and you will be saved. 
When the word of God assures you of salvation, it is false humility to doubt and question your security with God. However, what I want to say is, I want to also say, it is also possible to have a false assurance of salvation. It is also very possible that you can presume as if you trust in Jesus when your life and when your heart is not tuned to his grace. And Matthew especially is very big on this, isn't he? He has already said back in chapter 7, verse 21, the Sermon on the Mount, the famous verse, awful verse, very scary verse, where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And Matthew's gospel ends with these words. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. Obedience is so important. Obedience is one of the ways in which genuine repentance and faith is made manifest. Matthew's gospel tells us that it is possible to give a lip service to Jesus. It is possible to attend church, do religious activities, like the chief priest. You know, Jesus is speaking to chief priests, very religious people. It is possible to do all the religious activities. It's possible to speak with religious vocabularies whilst in your heart not trusting God, not loving God not hoping in God, not living a life of repentance, and not living by God's word. If the Holy Spirit is revealing to you that your heart or your life is like that in some way, well, listen to God's severe mercy through this parable. That is God's love, isn't it? That is God wanting to make sure you don't miss out on heaven and come uh, on, uh, found, found out on the last day, naked, without a garment. Jesus doesn't want you to miss out on the kingdom of heaven. It's to die for. It's better than anything the kingdom of earth can ever offer. So Jesus wants you to respond and receive God's grace rightly today with true repentance and faith, with a life bearing fruit of obedience to the glory of God. May that be true in all of our lives. Amen.